following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, sometimes as a pastor, the passage that you, or the subject matter that you are going to preach on becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this week, the opportunity was afforded to me on many occasions to deal with anger uh, because preaching on. And God was like, well, Bill, you always say you can't give away that which you don't currently own. And so uh, I had to, as we all do, walk through, as it were, opportunities that are afforded to us every single day to deal with anger, to deal with the triggers of anger, to make a decision. Am I going to lose my temper here? Am I going to uh, allow this to overtake me in this particular manner or way? Or am I going to respond differently? We've been looking at the life of David, and it's a beautiful picture of not just a life well lived, but a life that's lived in, as we've called it, an undaunted fashion. David was far from a perfect individual, but David was a man, it says, who was after God's own heart. He was a man who, even in the midst of his inconsistencies, the one thing that was incredibly consistent was his theological framework, his worldview in which he lived and understood life. He understood his own heart. He understood uh, those who were around him. Because one of the most amazing things about David that you see is, yes, he messed up. There's plenty of pictures of David messing up. But when confronted with his sin, uh, David always had a soft heart to respond to come in with admission of that, with repentance, uh, of wanting to learn uh, from that. And today we have another one of those pictures where David uh, loses his cool. Uh, David loses his temper, and it's great to have uh, figures like David within the Scriptures so that we can relate to them. The Scriptures are also profound in, in this uh, passage this week in this way. Sometimes we look and we try to figure out why God does certain things or how we understand certain things. And there's an argument against Christianity that it is incredibly uh, patriarchal and doesn't have a place uh, of honor and dignity for women. And this story in here highlights an incredible woman of the name Abigail, who was a woman of great discernment and of great wisdom a woman of beauty both outside and inside, a woman who literally in this passage is a Christ figure who steps in uh, and portrays the beauty of our Savior in a way that resonates deep within our hearts. So this passage of David dealing uh, with Abigail's husband Nabal, a worthless man, uh, is a great picture for us and a deep encouragement. And so as we approach God's Word, let's come uh, together to his word through prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have preserved over all these years. Thank you that it is your voice speaking to us. And we pray now uh, that you would send your spirit to teach us for your children listen. To Christ be the glory. Amen. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And we come into this passage and it begins with a, a very simple statement. And Samuel died. The great prophet of God has passed away and has been buried. And in one sense, it is another massive transition within the life, our uh, story, life of our history. 
the life of Israel and the history of Israel where the prophet of God was gone. Now it seems that Saul was going to be able to act unabated uh, in his pursuit of David. David has to move to another area on the Sinai Peninsula uh, called Paran, and he's there hiding again uh, with his men, and he is now going to come into a conflict, coming into a place where his anger boils over. And we're going to see uh, and look at some views today of what do we do with anger? How do we understand it and how do we deal with it? We're going to set the scene by reading a number of verses, not all of them, from chapter 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then David rose and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast today. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David." When David's men, uh, young men came, uh, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David, and who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back. And told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man then strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now in verse 14, we hear of a servant who goes and he has heard what's going on. And he goes back to Nabal's camp, to where he is and to his home. And he finds Abigail, Nabal's wife. And he explains, hey, we're in a lot of trouble. David and 400 armed men are on their way and they're going to kill everybody. And in verse 18, Abigail enters the scene in a beautiful way. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her and she met them. Now David said, had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried 
She got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard the worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Nabal means foolish or folly. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of the Lord when you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow the Lord. And she goes on and she explains that she's brought these things. And what is Nabal that he should even be a consideration for David? She intercedes. She mediates, as it were, on behalf of Nabal and all the men uh, in her town. And in verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See that I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And Abigail goes back, and she speaks. She was to come and tell Nabal, but her worthless, foolish husband was having a drunken party. He wasn't concerned that maybe he had just offended the future king of Israel and his 400 men with swords were on their way to destroy him. He was drunk and at a party. And so she was a discerning and wise woman, and she knew that you never try to reason with a drunk person. And so she let him sleep it off. And the next day he woke up, and she explained what had just happened and what she had done on behalf of him and all of the people. And it says that Nabal's heart died within him in 10 days, and he became as a stone. And 10 days later, he died. And after that, David came, and David took her as his wife, and in that, the very people that he was going to destroy, he became their guardian and their protector and their king. So it's a fascinating story. And we ask now for God to bless our understanding and hearing of it. So what we're going to look at first is this. It's the danger of anger. It's the danger of anger. We all have to be honest and say we deal with anger at some level or another. As some of you know, I'm a big North Carolina Tar Heel fan. And last night there was a basketball game on against a rival a few miles away named Duke. And I determined I'm not going to watch the game. I don't need the stress. I don't need it. I don't really care. As I try to tell myself, a bunch of 18, 19-year-old boys who I don't know playing a sport I didn't play at a school I didn't attend, it should have no bearing on my life. So I'm watching a movie with my wife, or I'm watching the movie, she's asleep, uh, and trying to watch Christopher Robin, A.A. Milne's story of, of Winnie the Pooh. What a great place to be, peaceful. And texts start coming in. Oh, what a game. Man, the refs are terrible. Bill, what do you think about this? I'm like, I'm trying not to think about this. 
I don't want to think about a stupid football game or basketball game. And I was like, I'm just not going to think about it. And so I was getting frustrated. That's another nice way of saying angry. Sounds better, though. It's more palatable. I'm frustrated with you. And so I was frustrated going to bed. And then I woke up this morning, and one of our loving families at the first service, their three daughters wore Duke sweatshirts <laughs> and sat right there because we lost. And so the Lord always gives us opportunity to deal with anger. We have a chance to figure it out, to analyze it, to, to come down and to then transform it, which we're going to talk about at the end. But there's a danger that we need to be honest about with anger. You see, sometimes anger is blazing hot. Sometimes this anger is uncontrollable and it burns within us and explodes on all of those who are around us. But at other times, our anger is chillingly cold and calculated. It doesn't explode, but it still has its desired effect on those who are near us. I heard a couple of wonderful statements recently as I was preparing, and I believe it was Gary Smalley, but I'm not exactly sure. One of the statements about anger was that anger is never buried dead, that anger is always buried alive, that you can stuff it away, that you can take it and you can say, I'm not going to deal with that, I'm just going to bury it somewhere within my heart and my soul and compartmentalize it somewhere, but know this about that anger, it's still alive, and it's going to wait for the moment when there's just the right amount of oxygen and just the right amount of rain and just the right atmosphere in which it will be stimulated back to full life. Another statement that I heard about anger that struck me was that anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick and die. I'm going to be angry with you. Okay. You can just live your life, but it eats up. It tears up. It's like drinking a poison and thinking that somehow the other person is going to get sick and die. See, the problem with anger is that it oftentimes works against its own self-interest. The very thing that we're trying to do, we end up destroying. Anger has a way of entering in, and at its very roots is our inability to differentiate between our desires and our rights. That when our desires, and even our rights for that matter, uh, are inhibited, when they are kept from coming to full fruition, we become angry because we believe that we're supposed to have this. We believe that this is an inalienable right uh, that we have. And the reality is that it's not an inalienable right, that we often and regularly have to die to our desires and even to our rights. You see, anger, it's provoked by something, always. Anger is provoked uh, by something. Whether that provocation is real or, or only imagined in the mind of the offended. And so we have to be good students about anger and understand it uh, so that we can deal with it properly and bring to bear upon it uh, a biblical worldview, a biblical scriptural truth. And one of the things that we understand about this danger uh, that we have with anger, or why anger is so dangerous, is that at its root, part of its very essence is that, danger, is that anger disintegrates. It has a disintegrating power uh, within our lives. Now, if you remember how we have understood the Scripture and the biblical, as it were, cosmic drama that plays out, there was creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And that in creation, all things were created beautiful and perfect, and everything in the world and in the cosmos was perfectly integrated. 
We were perfectly integrated psychologically and emotionally. We knew ourselves. We were, we were integrated in that. Relationally, we were perfectly integrated with one another, uh, with creation around us and with God. But sin entered in chapter 3. And when sin entered and the fall began, what you begin to see is that the entrance of sin, in whatever form it is, has a disintegrating influence, an in disintegration uh, of power upon life. And so what we see uh, in our lives with anger is that anger, being this kind of potential sin in that, anger disintegrates our hearts. There's an explosion within us when we get angry. David wrote in Psalm 39, my heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Can you relate to him? Can you? Now, again, it can be ice-cold anger, but it could be burning hot. But either way, you're going to get fired up. Now, you may not express it that way, but it comes in, and you want to express it. You feel like there's an explosion within your heart because it disintegrates your heart. It begins to rip apart at that very level of the soul because that's what sin does. Anger disintegrates not only our hearts personally, ourselves, but anger begins. Have you ever just paused there for a second? Have you ever just been around an angry person? Their life is just undone. They, they can't see and understand things properly. It, you look at them and you go, what happened? What happened so deep down that's made you such an angry person? It disintegrates our hearts. And then as our hearts disintegrate, it obviously then disintegrates our relationships. Anger tears apart our communities. It, it tears apart our families. It, it tears apart our relationships with one another. It, that it comes and, and it pulls apart. David's anger was about to have a profound impact on the community of Carmel. David was angry. And David said, let's get the swords, boys. We're going down for blood. And if there is one man alive by tomorrow morning in all of Nabal's company, then we have failed and we're going to do this. Do you think that would have had an adverse effect on the community relationship in Carmel? Absolutely it would have. Now, David may have been able to rule it, but he would have ruled it differently. He may have been able to own it, but he would have owned it differently. It has a way uh, of disintegrating relationships. Folks, one of the things, and, and we're going to deal with this later a, a bit, but within our relationships here in the church, one of the things that I see that disintegrates our relationships more than anything else is unconfessed, unanalyzed, and undealt with anger. That somebody got their feelings hurt that somebody was wronged. And instead of dealing with it, we hold it, we shove it down, and we go, ah, and it breaks us apart. Wouldn't it be awesome for the church of Jesus Christ to be a place where we lived honestly, where we could say to somebody, I'm angry with you. You, you hurt me. You, you did this, and I want to be made right with you. I don't want our relationship to be broken. I want us to be right together in the Lord. Wouldn't that be amazing if the watching world, and they are watching, by the way, looked and said, how do those people stay together? How does this group uh, of people who have almost nothing in common seem to be able to live together at shalom, at peace, in a flourishing sense? How is it? And I think at the very heart of it, it would be we deal with our stuff. We deal with our hearts and we deal with our anger. 
And then the other thing about anger that it disintegrates is not just our hearts, not just our relationships. It disintegrates our wisdom. It disintegrates our ability to think rightly. You see, when anger enters into the scene, reasonable thought exits. There's not room for both of them. When you've heard the statement of a blind rage, there literally is such a thing that it blinds us to reason uh, that we do things and that we wouldn't normally do. And you see this with David. He wasn't thinking right. He was overtaken with rage. And you know why he was overtaken with rage? Do you know what the big deal was? He got insulted. Who is this David? Who's this son of Jesse? Why am I going to give him my stuff to do? He felt slighted. He felt small. He felt marginalized. And like any reasonable person would do when they feel marginalized, slighted, and everything, in our day and age, it would be, hey, guys, load up ARs. We're going to school. I'm going to take everybody down. No, of course not. That's not wisdom. But that's anger which takes into the heart and blows apart our ability to think reasonably. Because have you ever tried to, have you ever tried to reason with an angry person? There's always self-justification and self-righteousness that comes out. Because you see, anger disintegrates. Anger has a way of ripping apart. And I come out of the gate strong on this. Because I want us to recognize the danger uh, that we have with anger in our lives and in our communities and in our relationships, and we need to deal with it, and all of us are susceptible to it. You know, the great part about chapter 25 is it comes right after chapter 24. And you know what chapter 24 was all about? You remember? I preached on it last week, folks. <laughs> kidding I did actually preach on it last week David showed incredible restraint to the man who tried to kill him to the man who's been talking badly about him all throughout Israel and Judah David in the cave had restrained his men from doing wrong and hadn't done wrong to Saul and he bowed with great humility before Saul and said why are you even concerned about me I'm a flea, I'm a worm, I'm a little guy. You're the king. Why should I be of any offense to you? And coming right out of that passage, some worthless dude in Carmel says, who are you? And David goes, kill him. You know what that says to me? Be careful, McCutcheon. You're susceptible to anger. Because I've talked with enough people over the course of my life in ministry, and they go, oh, I just don't get angry. Really? Hmm. You're the most dangerous kind. Because you don't know it. But I promise you, everybody around you does. Anger is a danger that we need to deal with in our lives. And it is universal. It is a human condition. So, what's next? We need to be able to differentiate about anger, to understand anger well. To the second major point that I want you to get today is this. Not all anger is the same. Not all anger uh, is the same. 
Because in the Bible, not all anger is considered wrong and sinful. Hear that. In the Bible, biblically speaking, not all anger is considered wrong and sinful. Astoundingly, the Bible speaks of anger in positive terms. Because according to the Bible, anger is basically a good thing. Now, it's been corrupted by sin, but at its core is a good thing. Notice in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Or Paul writing in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but don't sin within your anger. What those two things are saying is there is an anger that is biblical, scriptural, and good. Now, it's affected by sin, but there is an anger, and that kind of anger, the way that the Proverbs, uh, the writer of Proverbs, interestingly enough, most likely David's son, Solomon, wrote, said, here's the kind of anger that's good. It's a slow burn. It's a slow anger. It's a reasoned anger. It's a tempered anger, not a temper anger. John Chrysostom, the great Christian preacher and early church father, said it this way, this way when he was writing about anger. He that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins as well. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. Hear that again. He that is angry without cause sins. We would all go, yeah, if you're angry without cause, that's sin. But he who is not angry when there is cause sins as well. You see, not no anger, and it's not hot and furious anger, but it's a slow anger that we're to understand and to have. You see, slow anger or uh, a moderated or temperate anger uh, is the way that we should be. And here's why we can say that God is slow to anger. God has within himself anger. And if God has within himself anger, anger therefore can't be sinful in its perfect and pure form, in its natural condition, not its unnatural, sinful, affected condition. You see, David's anger towards Nabal was anything but a slow burn. David, standing there. And by the way, here's a little bit of the background story. David was in the mountains. Nabal had a bunch of his sheep and everything up in the mountains with shepherds. And there were others who would probably come in and attack and would take some of his sheep, maybe kill his shepherds. And David's army, as it were, played the part of protectorate for Nabal's flocks, for his wealth. And it was now shearing time, and there was tradition within the Jewish tradition that at shearing time, it was a great feast and a great festival. And so there was an expectation of a tip to the waiter, to the one who protected uh, the flocks. And so all David was doing was following what would have been Jewish tradition, and any generous and reasonable person uh, would have said, thank you for taking care of my armies. And David said, hey, I didn't take a single one. Now, I could have, but I didn't. I treated you with dignity and with integrity, and we would just like some. And interesting, what he asked for wasn't to feed the entirety of his army. He just said, give me some. They were hungry. They, they needed food. They'd been on the run from Saul. All of these things had happened. And David got stiffed. 
he didn't get the tip. He didn't get 20%. He didn't get 15%. He didn't get 10%. He didn't get anything. And David, the slow, reasoned, temperate man that he is, said, what? Kill them all! Swords, boys! I got mine. Actually, it would have been over here. It would have been on his left side. Everybody strapped on, and they were ready to go. That's not a slow burn. That's an impulsivity. That's not a biblical good anger. But you need to understand that there is a right kind of anger. And you, need, you really do need to know this. Becky Pippert, and I don't ever tell you of an of a author that I would say, read everything and accept everything this person says. Becky Pippert uh, writes some wonderful things, and a couple of her books are available for purchase out there. But she writes this about anger. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more his anger rises at the drunkard, the liar, the traitor within the son. If I, a flawed and self-centered woman, uh, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. True love always gets angry. When all those students were killed in Florida, you should have been angry. For the unborn millions of children that die in our country, you should be angry at evil, we should be angry when we see the effect of evil and of sin within the lives of those that we love because the opposite of love is indifference. That some of you, you need to be able to be angry but be able to be angry biblically. To look at a child who's making bad decisions. To look at a, a spouse who's making bad decisions. To look within your friendship. To look within your relationships. And in that, be able to differentiate between you wanting a pound of flesh and you being angry at the ravages of sin in someone that you love. That your heart breaks. And you want to fight on their behalf. And you want to shake them until they wake up. And you say, listen. I love you so much that my heart burns within me towards the decisions that you're making. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my husband. You're my wife. You're my friend. You're my parent. I love you and I'm angry at what I see the effects of the fall having in your life. Folks, that's where the church needs to wake up a little bit because the level of indifference that we have to the things that are going on in our families, in our world, is palpable. That's not love. And it's not godliness. We think it is. Well, I didn't get angry. I, actually, it would be good if you got a little angry. Are you upset at all? Over anything? Is there a heart? See, anger, this kind of anger, true love, always gets angry. Anger in its uncorrupted origin is just love moved to deal with the threat towards someone that we love. Anger in its uncorrupted origin is just love moved to deal with a threat to someone that we love. Tim Keller wrote that. Anger is love in motion. It's love in action. 
in that sense. So now, how do we distinguish between biblical righteous anger and sinful corrupted anger? Sinful corrupted anger always overreacts. That's one thing that you can see. Sinful anger always overreacts. We try to kill the cockroach with shotgun. I won't tell you what state in which I was living, but there was a news article about a woman who had a corn on her little foot, you know, really painful corn, where every time she wore shoes, she, it hurt, and she was frustrated over the years, and nobody could fix the corn. So you know what she did? She took a 410 shotgun and got rid of the corn. Three toes went with it. She got rid of the corn. Anger is that way. It always overreacts. Again, look at David. He overreacted. So what? He didn't give you some food. He said, who is David? Woo! He accused David of revolt against Saul. There's a lot of men around who were revolting against their masters, is what he said. An inside little slight at David of going, you're not the true king. Saul is. Who is? I support Saul. I'm not about to give you any of my, my meat, my food, my stuff. David said, I'm going to kill you. And everybody who's with you, a slight overreaction. So sinful anger always overreacts. Sinful anger intends harm. Sinful anger intends harm. It, it wants payback. It, it wants a pound of flesh. It wants someone to feel the pain that you feel, to feel the slight that you feel. It, it has at its core not justice at all, but it has at its core a punitive nature. And so as you consider your anger, is it overreacting? Is it punitive and harmful? It seeks revenge is one of the ways to distinguish sinful anger. It seeks revenge. You see, revenge, I was reading, it's a great thought. Revenge has as an underlying assumption that God is asleep at the wheel. We need to take care of it on our own. Look at what David said on a couple of occasions in here. He said, oh, no. I'm so thankful that you kept me from blood guilt because I was going to basically save myself. I was going to do this. I was going to step into the Lord's role because I didn't see the Lord stepping in. Samuel's gone. There's nobody doing the Lord's work. I've got to step into that now vacated space, and I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to make sure that he gets justice. We assume that God is asleep at the wheel you see, revenge is anger at God's seeming powerlessness and a frustration at his slow timing on rectifying wrongs. Anger has at its core a revenge. So as you try to distinguish, consider at least those three. That's not exhaustive. So as we wrap up, what do we do with our anger? We've identified that we have anger. And if we say that we don't have anger, we identified that we have lying tendencies within our lives. Uh, in that, in a lack of self-awareness. So what do we do with our anger? The first thing is this, own it. Just own it. Increase your self-awareness. Uh, look at what David said in verse 32 and following. Abigail had spoken. She came. She brought all this food. She did this beautiful thing. And David said, I wasn't angry. I was just a little frustrated. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me. He owned it. He said, I was about to do terrible wrong. And I'm so thankful that you interceded 
on behalf of Nabal. I, but more importantly, I'm thankful that you interceded on my behalf. He admitted it. So we need to admit to ourselves that we're angry. I don't know why. That leads to the next one. So at least first, admit that you're angry. I've got some anger I need to deal with. Second, analyze your anger. Analyze your anger. Find the deep root within you. Find out what is being threatened that's causing you to be angry. Anger is usually the presenting problem. Anger is the rash on the skin uh, that may say that you have bone cancer, AML leukemia, that's coming out through uh, the marrow and through the bone and up onto the skin. So I'm not going to put a topical cream on it. I'm going to analyze it and go, and there's a bunch of different rashes in the world. And this one, oh, this is a sinister kind. It has something deeper underneath it. Anger is the same way. Normally, anger comes and presents itself when something that we have determined is beyond valuable has become ultimate, is threatened. And that's different for each of you. It can be your wealth. It it can be your status. uh, It can be your uh, children. It can be your marriage. It can be whether you're married or not. It's all of these things. And when they get threatened, when somebody threatens them, we get angry. They go, hey, you got to protect me. This is your reputation. Someone just dissed you. Someone just spoke ill of you. And we see it welling up, and we need to analyze it. We need to find out what happened deep uh, within us. Tim Keller put it this way, we must go into the details of anger and understand its source. It means that when we find ourselves getting angry, when those emotions start to rise up, we stop and ask, what is the big thing that's so important to me that I get this defensive? What am I loving so much right now that my heart is moved to anger? If you ask that question, if you do this analysis, more often than not, you'll immediately be embarrassed because many, many times the thing you're defending is your ego, your pride, and your self-esteem. Because if you boil it down, it comes down to this. They didn't like me. They didn't say thank you. They didn't send me a thank you note. We invited them to dinner and now they're having a party and I didn't get invited to their house for dinner. We sound like children. All of life is middle school. You know that, right? (laughs) And we need to deal with it that way. We laugh at middle schoolers, but guess what? That's where they learn those tendencies. Mom and dad, grandma, granddad. I'm not talking to him. He hurt my feelings. So you mean your mother and father haven't spoken for a week? No. Why? Dad got his feelings hurt and he's pouting. I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go play with someone else. I don't like your sandbox anymore. Start putting it in those terms, and all of a sudden, you'll be embarrassed. And you go, oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. This is why I'm angry. Oh, my goodness, I want to deal with it. And then here's how you, the final thing of how you deal with it. Transform it. Take it to a cross. Somebody asked me, how does David get off the hook so often? Same way we do. God, in his rich mercy, sends someone to intercede on our behalf. And for David here, it was Abigail, a beautiful woman of dignity and of integrity. And God sent and said, don't do this. I'll take the blood guilt for you. I'll take your place. Later, it was Nathan who said, hey, be careful. But folks, each of us have that same one. And it's coming at this table that we're going to invite you to come to now. This Christ He's the true Abigail, if you want to put it that way. He's the one who said to his father, I'll take their blood guilt 
I'll stand in their place. Your anger, your righteous indignation against all of them uh, that you've given to me, I'll take, Father. Uh, I'll take it there. And so what we have to do with our anger is, is know it, analyze it, own it, and take it somewhere. Take it to a cross. Take it to a Savior who said, I'm willing to stand in your place. I'm willing to come and do this on your behalf to keep you from your impulsivity and to recognize this, you are not alone, folks. You have the third person of the Trinity embedded within you if you are a follower of Christ, and that is stronger than conscience. That is the third person equal with God the Father, equal with God the, Holy, the, God the Son, in power and glory, embedded within your life. And it says, hey, maybe you shouldn't kill 400 people today. Just saying. Maybe because there is no test and there is no temptation too great for us that we can't overcome by the power of God and His Spirit. So come to this table today. Bring your anger here to the only one who was truly just in all of His anger. And He poured it on Christ so that you could get mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great mercy to us. And we come now to this table and we have confidence to enter now into this sanctuary by the blood of Christ and by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, Father, hear now our confessions to you, that you would take all that we have, and you would put it on a cross and find forgiveness in Christ on our behalf.